All right. Good morning. Uh, welcome to our next week of being scattered together. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to gather with us in this way. We do pray this is a, a blessing and an encouragement to you today, and we are looking so forward to the day when we will be back in this place and, and praying toward that end and trusting God to do it. Uh, we're going to come to a time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it now to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. And this is what Matthew tells us. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's God's word. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive into this passage. Spirit of God, uh, we ask you to be present with us. We ask you to open eyes and hearts and minds to receive what you want to say to us, and then accomplish the work in us that you want to do this morning. I'm asking you to do that by your strength and your power and might. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, when I was a kid growing up, and, and I'm just praying right now that somebody listening to this can uh, uh, like relate to this somehow, I'm just going to out myself right now as the most like awful self-centered kid ever, but... When I was a kid growing up, I can remember, whether it was with my parents um, or then later on with a boss or somebody in authority over me, I can remember all kinds of different times feeling like I was being so unfairly and unjustly treated by them, usually in the context of them just pretty much asking me to do anything, to help out or contribute like in any way. I was like, oh, I'm being so unfairly and unjustly treated. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I hope I never said this out loud, but I remember thinking, man, I can't wait till I'm in charge one day. Then I can order everyone to do all the work while I just sit around doing nothing. Does anybody feel like they maybe thought that too? Now, no, that's not for a second to suggest that all parents and all bosses always use their positions of power and authority fairly and justly. They don't. I know, but the reality I came to understand when I became a parent myself, when I came to take on positions of leadership myself, is that, man, there is way more involved, like far way more that's required in those roles than I had any clue about back then from my just very limited perspective. 
I mean, you, you become a parent, you, you, become a, you become a leader of something, and all of a sudden, you begin to understand what leading and being in charge actually means. That, that it has almost nothing to do with sitting around, serving yourself, like, like sitting very much at all, actually, and, and almost everything to do with actually sacrificing what you want and what you need for the needs of your family or the organization or the needs of the people that you've been called to lead. That, that, that's what leading actually means. And I mention all that as we continue in our teaching series this morning through the Gospel of Matthew because one of the things that often ends up confusing us about this fairly well-known passage of Jesus being tempted out in the wilderness is that we don't understand from our limited perspective what sonship means. We don't understand what, what, what that means or what's involved or required for Jesus to actually be the beloved Son of God with whom I am well pleased as the Father spoke over Jesus following his baptism that we looked at last week. We don't, we don't, we don't know what that means. And because we don't understand the fullness of that from our limited perspective, we can and often do misunderstand both what it is that Satan's actually trying to accomplish in his temptation of Jesus or what Jesus is doing out in the wilderness experiencing this temptation to begin with. So that's actually a big part of what I want to try to help us understand today from this passage, the, the meaning of sonship. But the reason why this passage is actually important for us to look at still today, 2,000 years later, is not solely just so we can understand what capital S sonship meant for Jesus. It's also that as followers of Jesus, we can also come to understand what small, lowercase s sonship means for us. What do I mean by that? Well, because while the declaration of the Father over the one that he anointed with the Spirit and who would fulfill all righteousness was, this is my beloved Son, the declaration of God's Word over those who have received the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled is that we too are now sons and heirs alongside Jesus. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4, after connecting faith in Jesus with our adoption into the family of God, stating this, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And I know Maybe you hear that and you're like, hey, it's 2021. Don't you mean sons and daughters? Um, no, actually. Um, if you never heard me talk about that passage from the Apostle Paul, uh, in that historical context, uh, a son was the only one who would receive an inheritance from the father. So in that weird way, in the same way that both men and women are referred to as the bride of Christ in Revelation, um, here men and women are both referred to as sons. Those who've been adopted into the family of God, we are heirs and sons now with God. So, okay, so lots, there's lots here, right? Lots to unpack, both about Jesus as well as about us. Uh, I don't think there's any way we would ever deal with all of it, but my hope is that as we come out of this passage, uh, having looked at this today, I hope we'll at least come out with a greater understanding of the meaning of sonship for Jesus and the meaning of sonship for us, those two things, the meaning of sonship for Jesus and for us. So, if you close your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage here? Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as Matthew helps us to understand 
the meaning of sonship. Okay, so let's look first of all at the meaning of sonship for Jesus. The meaning of sonship for Jesus. So, as I said, there, there's so, so much going on in this passage, as evidenced by the fact, uh, like a bathroom stop five minutes into a road trip, because we can't even get past verse 1 without having to pause and, and wrestle with the reality that we see there that Jesus is neither lured into the wilderness by Satan nor is he ambushed by him once he gets there. But as we're told here in verse 1, he is led directly into the wilderness and tempted by the devil himself by the same Spirit of God that had just anointed him in his baptism moments earlier. Which is not to say, no, that, that the Spirit led Jesus into temptation. No, but the Spirit absolutely led Jesus into the wilderness where we're told uh, he experienced this temptation and the Spirit undoubtedly knew that he would be tempted there by the devil. So, I mean, we, we got to do something with that, right? We got to do something because already that goes against so much of what we commonly think about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, doesn't it? For most of us, we look at a situation that works out as well as or better than we prayed it would, and we're like, all right, so that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then anything else, that's a demonic attack, that's the devil coming in, uh, and, and yet... In the same way that my eight-year-old self couldn't understand even half of what it meant for a mom or a dad to lead a family. In the same way that Jesus later here would, would lead his disciples across a lake, falling asleep in the back of a boat, knowing that they were going to encounter a storm that would nearly drown them. I think what we're being shown here right from the beginning of this passage, right off the bat, is that just because the circumstances you're going through are challenging, are hard, are opposite to what you were expecting, doesn't mean necessarily, automatically, that the Spirit isn't still leading you. That perhaps He hasn't also got a purpose for you in this trial beyond what you can presently see and understand from your limited perspective. Now, verse 2 tells us that as the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness, he'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights before he encounters these three specific temptations from the devil. And as you see at the end of verse 2 there, we're told, and he was hungry. He was hungry. I want to just ask you to take that thought there and just put a post-it note in it, put a little marker by it, because it's a really important detail that we're going to come back to and return to later on. But just moving on here to the temptations, the, the three temptations, if you look now, that we see the devil bringing against Jesus are, first of all, there in verse 3, he's tempted to turn stones into bread. Secondly, verse 6, he is uh, tempted to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And then finally, in verse 9, he is tempted to fall down and worship Satan. I just want to look at each one of those temptations individually for just a moment. The first one, there again, verse 3, turn stones into loaves of bread. Given what we've just been told about Jesus having just completed a fast for 40 days and nights, seems pretty straightforward, right? Satan is attacking Jesus' greatest point of weakness here and inviting him to use his divine power to alleviate his physical need, which... I don't know, that seems like a fairly harmless request, actually, until you remember that it was the Spirit who had led Jesus into the wilderness and not Satan. And so, 
what we see in Jesus' response, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, is that for Jesus, he so trusts in the Spirit's love and care for him that he believes if the Spirit of God has led him into the wilderness by his word, then he can trust the Spirit to know and provide for his needs. For every one of them. Oh, that we could have that mindset in our hearts today to believe man if uh, if god has led me to this place i'm trusting he's going to provide for me here i don't need to try and scheme and fix it any other way i trust that he's got me look at the second temptation now just as jesus finishes expressing his resolute trust in the spirit's care for him satan now says okay and attacks jesus greatest point of strength inviting him to demonstrate his unfailing trust in the Spirit's care, as the scripture that he quotes to Jesus promises, by throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple some 300 feet, trusting that, hey, God's got you. He's going to care for you, just like his word says. As one commentator noted, it's, it's almost as if Satan is saying to Jesus, oh, so you trust in every word that comes from the mouth of God, do you? Okay, well, put your money where your mouth is and prove it. And yet, as Jesus' response to this temptation rightly points out, to put God to the test in any way is, is, is the antithesis of trust. Final temptation attacks at Jesus' very heart, at his very purpose, inviting Jesus to accomplish the very goal for which he had come, but in a way that was contrary to the will of the Father. Here, in a sense, it's almost as if Satan is saying to Jesus, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll give you what you want most, the the world and and, and all of its glory, if you'll give me what I want most, your worship. Now, this is not for a moment to suggest that Satan actually had all the kingdoms of the world to give to Jesus, should he decide to take him up on this offer, but knowing the, the full awful costs that would be required to bring about the redemption of those that he'd come to seek and to save. This shortcut to redemption Satan was offering Jesus must have still been profoundly tempting to him. And yet one last time, as we see here in verses 10 and 11, Jesus expresses his fidelity both to God and to his word, and this time commanding Satan to now leave him as well bringing about Satan's immediate departure. But then look at verse 11, followed by the very ministry and care from heaven Jesus had been expressing his faithful trust in. But I don't know whether you've heard a lot of sermons on this passage before, or maybe this is the first time you've ever read it. But questions as you read through this that likely come up in your mind, I know they're in my mind as well, are are things like, "Okay, okay, okay, cool, so Jesus, he goes out in the wilderness, He's tempted by Satan. He remains faithful to to the Father throughout, defeating Satan. That's awesome. But, okay, so what? Why why are we being told this? Uh, What's actually going on? Why, Why is this happening right now? Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why, uh, why does Satan bring these temptations against Jesus in particular? And why does he keep framing them with this repeated conditional clause, if you are the Son of God? Like, what's actually going on here? And the answer to those questions, I believe, comes in understanding what the meaning of sonship is for Jesus. Remember, remember the context that we're looking at here. Immediately following his baptism, 
Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, and he's given this confirming word of God from the Father above. This is my beloved Son, whom I, with whom I am well pleased. And then the very next thing that happens, Mark's gospel tells us immediately, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and then is tempted by the devil. Okay, so that's what we've got here on the table. Well, when you spread those details out over the table and try to just look at them and see, okay, what's going on here? We've got a son of God, we've got wilderness, we've got the number 40, we've got uh, these three temptations that uh, are brought against Jesus, uh, uh, both um, to trust in God's provision, to, to not putting God to the test, fidelity in worship, uh, to God, as well as even just where those scripture quotations that Jesus brings up come from in the text. You start looking at all those things together, and suddenly, I think a one-to-one parallel begins to emerge, actually, where we begin to see a, a connection between the path of God's redeemed people, Israel, through the wilderness for 40 years, where they uh, were freed from slavery in Egypt, and the path of Jesus out in the wilderness. 40 days fasting, and then tempted by the devil. I I think we start to see a one-to-one correlation between these two things. For remember, as as we saw just two weeks ago, when uh, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt in their Matthew chapter 2, and we're told with that quote from Isaiah that the people of Israel as a whole are referred to as my son. All of a sudden, all these pieces start to come together. Do, Do you see it? For, for what had God's son Israel failed to do after God had led them through their baptism in the Red Sea and out into the wilderness? What did they fail to do? Well, to trust in God's provision, to not put him to the test, and to give their worship to none but God alone. They, they'd failed in all those things. And yet, what did Jesus tell John the Baptist that he had come to do, beginning with his baptism in the Jordan? To fulfill all righteousness. That is, to fill up, to complete, to carry out what God's first son, Israel, had failed to do. Now here's Jesus filling up and doing. I don't know, we can sometimes read Satan tempting Jesus with this, if you're the son of God, and see that as kind of like a mocking taunt meant to cause Jesus to question whether he really was the son of God. I don't know if you've ever read it that way, and yet there's never any indication actually given throughout the New Testament that Jesus, or or Satan for that matter, had any doubt about Jesus' identity as the Son. As Leon Morris rightly notes, the temptations must be understood as the consequence of Jesus' acceptance of his divine sonship, not doubts about it. And yet he goes on, listen, this is so important. The temptation narratives picture Jesus asking what sonship means. What does it mean for me to be the son? That's what, he's, that's what we're seeing in these temptation narratives. Is he to be a wonder worker, using his powers to meet his own needs and possibly those of others? Is he to, be, is he to do spectacular but pointless miracles? Is he to establish a mighty empire ruling over the world? Matthew tells us right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus looked at each of these and rejected them all as temptations of the devil. End quote. For, for the, like, think about it. As the Messiah, Jesus could have created bread. He could have produced bread whenever he wanted to, as evidenced by the fact that he could create enough bread to feed 5,000 men and their families. 
in the midst of his ministry. Jesus tells us that he had authority to call a legion of angels to come to his rescue at any moment if he so desired. And yet, in order to fulfill all righteousness, we see Jesus putting aside serving himself, serving his own needs. As he said, he came to serve and not to be served, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant, and then sacrificing his own wants and needs in order to complete, in order to fill up what the people of Israel had failed to do in their wilderness temptation. Why? Well, First of all, because as the Lamb of God, Jesus was the only one who could fulfill all righteousness, yes. But also, as the author of Hebrews tells us, so that by faith in his work, by faith in his righteousness that he's completing on our behalf, we might, he says, draw near to the throne of grace, find mercy and grace to help in a time of need, because now we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's why. So, so, so that was the meaning of sonship for Jesus. To, to fill up, to fulfill all righteousness as the true and better Son of God, as the true and better Israel. But what does any of that mean for us now, Today? And how are we to understand our role as sons, which as we've seen now, by by faith in Jesus, we now become sons of God. So so what does all of that now mean for us in light of what we just saw, what it meant for Jesus? Well, that's what I want to look at lastly now as we consider the meaning of sonship for us. The meaning of sonship for us. And in order to help us at least begin to understand this, I want to just consider two questions that are going to help just frame how we look at this. We'll look at the first question here, and then we'll look at the second question in closing. And so the first question I want you to consider is this. What can I learn from the way Jesus fought temptation that will help me in my own fight against the schemes of the devil? Okay, that's the first question. What can I learn by how Jesus fights temptation to know how I can fight when I'm faced with the schemes of the devil and I'm trusting Uh, having just completed our series through the book of Ephesians not that long ago and hearing about both the schemes of the devil alongside the way we see Jesus using the sword of the Spirit and all these temptations that you'll already have a little bit of a clue about where I'm going here. But actually there's, there's even more than just using the sword of the Spirit to fight temptation because if you look first of all at the circumstances, look at the circumstances in which Jesus experiences this temptation. And when you consider that, I think you'll have one of the other keys to victory and temptation yourself already. Because notice, before the devil brings a single temptation against Jesus, what is Jesus doing? What's going on in his life? What's he doing? Well, let's see. He's submitting to a baptism of repentance. He's experiencing divine coronation as the Son of God. He's going off on a personal retreat fasting and praying for 40 days and nights. Is there anything about that that sounds like unfaithfulness or disobedience to God? Anything? No. And yet, despite his perfect obedience to the Father, you see that rather than excusing or exempting Jesus, either from the temptations of the devil or the testing or proving of the Spirit, it actually draws those things to him. Now, we need to know that those two things are different. Temptation and testing, those are not the same thing because the Spirit of God will never tempt you to sin. 
Yet he will absolutely test you in order to give you both opportunity to more deeply establish your faithfulness as well as to grow stronger in your faith. That's, that's a good thing, actually. But listen, here's the key. What are the schemes of the devil that he continues to use to this day says this, and maybe you've felt this way and, and heard it already in your, in your own heart and mind. It's this, being a son of God should mean that I'm now freed from all trials, difficulties, and sufferings in my life. That's the scheme. If, if, if you are a son of God, says the devil, says the devil, you shouldn't be experiencing all these struggles in your life, these financial struggles. You shouldn't be having these health difficulties. You shouldn't be hurt. You shouldn't be afraid in any way. You shouldn't be uh, experiencing loss or, or rejection of any kind, and on and on and on. And if you start to become tempted to believe that scheme, you can become incredibly defeated, discouraged, and even bitter against God. Why? Well, because your obedience hasn't earned you the free pass on life that you thought being a son earned you. It didn't, it didn't earn it. It didn't work. But that's one of the things that's so helpful already that we learn about fighting temptation, that you learn when you see that even the perfect obedience of Jesus didn't exempt him either from temptation or tempting. And when we see that, it helps expose that scheme for the lie that it is. Being a son doesn't exempt you from these things. It actually draws them and brings them about. But then, yes, secondly, as I said a moment ago, look, look at the way, as we look through this passage, look at Jesus masterfully wielding the sword of the Spirit, both in defense as well as attack against the devil's temptation. For, for with every temptation, Jesus' reply begins first with, it is written, and then he's quoting from the Scriptures. And so what we learn from this master class is, is we're seeing both what the sword of the Spirit looks like in battle, like what it looks like to use it, as well as how effective it is at standing up against Satan's temptations. Every time it is blocking, attacking, defeating these temptations. And if there's any challenge or encouragement that I hope we would all draw from Jesus' example here, it would be these two things. First, that, that we need to be both far more expectant of Satan's attacks and we need to be far more practiced in our use of the sword. If there's any challenge or encouragement I think we can draw from Jesus' example, it's those two things. That we would be far more expectant of Satan's attacks. Because again, we saw obedience doesn't, doesn't exempt us from these attacks. It, it draws them. And, and, and which means if we're expecting an attack, we need to be ready, right? We, the armor of God can't be like that life jacket that you're using as a seat cushion. We need to actually have it put on because we're expecting these attacks. And we need to be so much more practiced in our use of the sword. We've all got the same sword. Everybody's got one of these, and yet how practiced are you at using it? Do you give even a few minutes each day to becoming more practiced and familiar with every word that comes from the mouth of God? And it's not everything, no, but I wonder if many times, uh, um, as I'm talking with people about struggling with temptation, they're like, I just keep failing. I just keep giving in. I don't understand what's wrong. I mean, I guess, I guess this just doesn't work. I, I guess maybe I'm not a son. I, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, I wonder if many times the real reason we continue to fail and fall under temptation and the schemes of the devil again and again and again. It's not because of any equipment failure. 
but because we remain unpracticed in the use of our weapons. Or we're scrambling each time to even put our armor on after the attack has already begun. I mean, if I'm in a sword fight with a samurai, I could have the same katana that he has, and yet if I'm not practiced as he is, I'm going to get lit up, right? Or if I'm in a battle and I'm about to be attacked, can you imagine saying, actually, can you just hang on one second? got to go and put my armor on and get my sword. No, you're done, right? We need to be expectant of the attacks, far more practiced with our use of the sword. So we're ready. Okay, so that's the first question, what we can learn from the way Jesus fought temptation to help us stand firm in the midst of the battle ourselves. The last question I want to look at in closing is this. What must I know about Jesus' victory over temptation that will assure me of victory over uh, temptation, over my own battles against temptation? What do I need to know about Jesus' victory that's going to help me see that victory is actually possible in my own struggle against temptation? And this question is is so, so important, equally important as the first, actually, because I don't know about you, but as inspiring as watching Jesus do battle against the devil and winning is, like, yeah, Team Jesus, okay, great. The thought that keeps coming into my head again and again is, yeah, but, I mean, of course he won. Of course he could stand up against temptation. He's Jesus. He's God. Of course he could win. problem with that thinking that way is that what that leads us to conclude then eventually is that okay but then no Jesus didn't really experience temptation like I do he wasn't really tempted like I am in every way he doesn't really understand how it is for me and then leads us even further to say but then I guess that means he doesn't really sympathize with my weakness actually And that means probably right now Jesus is just incredibly disappointed with me and ready to just be done with me at any minute now. That's where that line of thinking takes us. Does that sound familiar at all? Have you felt that way before? I have. And listen, here's the thing. In the same way that the devil tries to use your obedience as a son of God in the face of trials to discourage and defeat you, he will use your disobedience to try to cause you to doubt that you're even a son to begin with. If you're really a son of God, you've undoubtedly heard the enemy say in every moment of failure, how could you think such a thing? How could you follow through with that and actually do that? Are you kidding me? How could you have desires like those? I mean, Jesus, yeah, he, he was absolutely a son of God. Look at the way he obeyed. But you? You couldn't possibly be. You couldn't possibly be. As, as Tim Keller notes so well and powerfully, deep down inside, what the devil gets us with every time is that we know we're not pleasing. And yet the key to victory in that moment is found all the way back in that 
point I asked you to like put a little post-it note in back in verse 2 where it talked about Jesus after he'd finished his fast of 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. Take it down now. This is where the key is found. For yes, what the Bible teaches us absolutely is Jesus is fully God. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Yes. But what the Bible also teaches is that Jesus was fully man. He was fully Man, and no, we don't know everything about how that worked out, how those things worked together during Jesus' earthly ministry. But I think if you read through the New Testament Gospels, you, you'll see, I think, what are giving us some clues that help us to understand at least a little bit about when Jesus might be operating more in his divine nature and when he's operating more in his human nature, if I can put it that simply. So when Jesus is about to perform a miracle in using his divine nature and power, we'll see things like Jesus raising his eyes to heaven. We'll see Jesus giving thanks to the Father. We'll see Jesus speaking about forgiveness of sins and on and on and on. But whenever Jesus is operating more in his human nature, we're told things like this, that he was tired, that he was thirsty, that he was in anguish of spirits, and we're told about him being hungry, which is exactly what we're told about Jesus just before he enters into these temptations by the devil which means listen if i'm right first of all what that means is that jesus really was tempted as we are he really was and yes he absolutely does sympathize with our weaknesses because he experienced those temptations not in some kind of divinely shielded way like he was like taking a bulletproof tour bus through the battle scene being like no i went through it too no he really experienced them as we do in his humanity. So that's what it means, first of all. But when Hebrews tells us that he faced temptation as we do, yet without sin, it also tells us something else incredibly important. Because for, for an identifying with those that he came to seek and to save in every way, yet without sin, what that means is that Jesus was then able to present a sinless, perfect sacrifice, obedient offering to God on our behalf. Thus, filling up all righteousness, or to use the language we've just been using, to be pleasing to God for us. Keller, again, makes a, a, an important point about that last temptation that Satan brings against Jesus in particular, which you remember, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms and the glory of the world. Uh, basically, to, to avoid the pain of the cross by taking a shortcut to redemption, Keller says this, what, what Satan wanted most from Jesus was for him to be an example and not a savior. Jesus, be an example. Show people like every other leader of every major religion in the world, show people an example of what it looks like to get to God. Follow my example, do this, but don't be God come to get them. Show them how to get to God. Don't be God come to get them. But no. What Jesus knew was that we needed most was not an example to live up to, but a Savior who would redeem and adopt us into the family of God. Not a, a standard that we would continue to fail to live up to, but a substitute who would be pleasing to God in our place. So that now, if ever and whenever you've fought and still failed 
And as the modern hymn says, Satan tempts us to despair. If you were a son of God, how could you be? You can always and ever look up and see him there who truly sympathizes with your struggle, but who also made an end to all your sin. For because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is now and for all time counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon thee. Which is just simply to say this, that now, by faith in Jesus and based on his pleasing performance alone, the Father now looks on you and on me, in spite of all our failures and all our screw-ups, and can still say, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. We'll spend all eternity thanking you for that. Amen. Amen.